You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. In 2017, a major controversy broke out online. And over time, that controversy has provoked reactions with videos and tweets and podcasts and blog posts and more. And recently, last summer, the topic surfaced again. And at least in my social media feeds, it has been impossible to ignore in the last couple of weeks. But before I go further on that controversy, I need to give you a little bit of background. So back in 1952, there was a cache of ancient papyri that were discovered in Egypt. They're now known as the Bodmer papyri. And among those ancient manuscripts is one that is known as Papyrus 66. Now, all of these papyri are dated around 200 CE, And this particular one, Papyrus 66, contains the first 14 chapters of the Gospel of John and fragments of various sizes from the remaining seven chapters. And it's written in one single column that fills up the page with uppercase letters, no spaces, and a little smattering of accent marks and punctuation in certain passages. And it is a remarkable manuscript for many reasons. For starters, it's being one of the oldest and well-preserved gospel manuscripts that we have. And it also has an astounding number of scribal corrections in it. There are around 440 or so. And these include additions, deletions, rewriting, some word order shifts, and other alterations to the text. And scholars have looked at it and have suggested that perhaps the original scribe may have had two manuscripts that they were copying from. One for the bulk of the gospel and a second manuscript, a different version that they used to make corrections. And there are also some who argue that it was a later editor or editors who came back and made some of those changes that we can see clearly in the manuscript. Now, you may be asking yourself, why is she talking about ancient papyri tucked away in a museum somewhere? Has Dan Brown written a new novel? (laughs) No, or at least I don't know if he is or not. But fast forward to 2017, and there was a little article that was published in the Harvard Theological Review, and it was based on a master's level thesis by a seminary student, Elizabeth Schrader. 
And her hypothesis back in 2017 created quite a stir in biblical study circles, which admittedly is a small group. But her interest was on the gospel text that we heard this morning from John 11, which began when she started to look closely at Papyrus 66. In that second century copy of the fourth gospel, copied a hundred or so years after it was written by the fourth evangelist, the original line of the first verse of chapter 11 reads, There was a certain sick man, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and of Mary, his sister. Which is a little awkward construction, you might think. In the Greek, it's important to note that the name Mary differs from the name Martha by one letter. Mary has an iota in it, which looks and is transliterated as an I in English. So it looks to the I like Maria, M-A-R-I-A. While Martha, instead of that little iota, has a theta, a th in English, which looks like an O with a little center dash. Now, either the scribe of Papyrus 66 or a later editor coming in has corrected two words in the Greek so that the line which originally read, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and of Mary his sister, is changed to Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and of Martha, her sister. The iota in the second Maria has been scratched out and a little thin theta added in. And then the pronoun was changed from the masculine to the feminine case. And from there, Schrader kept digging looking for other corrections in the first five verses of John 11, and then expanding to look at the entire chapter and also into chapter 12, first in that Papyrus 66, and then in other early manuscripts. And she did what good researchers do. She kept track of the variations in wordings that she found to help discover patterns. And she found that one in five Greek manuscripts has some problem around the name Martha, Mary, and the singular and plural pronouns, or the plural or singular sister. And one in three Latin manuscripts that she's looked at have similar variations. And she began to wonder whether one woman, Mary, the sister of Lazarus of Bethany, had somehow been split into two women, Mary and Martha. And along the way, she found more variances in a copy of what is the earliest pilgrimage diary, dating back to the late 4th century, by a female pilgrim named Egeria, who wrote of visiting, quote, a church in the street on that spot where Mary, the sister of Lazarus, met with the Lord. And interestingly, that diary doesn't mention Martha, only Mary. And similarly, looking at the early church father Tertullian's writings on this passage, he seems to have had a copy of the Gospel of John, which had Mary and not Martha 
responding to Jesus' statement and question we heard earlier when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And the sister responds with the full confession, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. And Tertullian ascribes that to Mary, not to Martha. Other scholars had noticed this before, and they chalked it up to a mistake that Tertullian had made, or perhaps a memory lapse he might have had. And it's that confession. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world, which stands out in this passage. In the midst of deep grief, that oppressive shadow of death which can blot out all hope, this confession hearkens us, the readers, to remember. We're invited, as we did last week, to remember those first verses of the gospel. That resume that the fourth gospel writer gives us, that tells us Jesus' identity. Remember in the prologue? It says in part, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And he came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Now in Bethany, As his ministry is drawing to a dramatic close, Jesus will reveal here the final sign of his identity, raising Lazarus from the dead. And we, the readers, we already know that Jesus is the true light coming into the world and all who believe in his name, he gave power to become children of God. The fourth evangelist has made sure that we know that. And here... The confession of faith, which is uttered before that sign occurs, is given on the lips of a woman. And according to our English text, that woman was Martha, who pops into the narrative suddenly and then disappears. Now, Schrader wondered whether these separate variances in manuscripts and extra-biblical sources might be pointing to something different. And she began to think that for some reason, Martha may have been added into this story in chapter 11 and 12. And perhaps it was Mary and not Martha who voices that pivotal confession of faith. Now granted, there are a lot of Marys in the Gospels. And it can get really confusing. There's Mary of Nazareth, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary Magdalene. There's Mary of Bethany. There's Mary, the sister of Martha. There's Mary, the mother of James, and perhaps even more. And which Mary does what and when can get difficult to sort out. And since at least the third century, some sources have equated Mary Magdalene with Mary of Bethany. And contemporary scholars have scratched their heads and they've tried to separate out the various Marys and others have argued that Mary is actually a composite figure of multiple women. It's just messy. 
And those of you who do genealogy research, you may sympathize with this. In my dad's family tree, I do really well until about the 1700s. And then all of a sudden, there are so many Toms and Williams and Marys that I can't figure out who's who. Are they a direct descendant? Or are they a distant cousin? Why do they have to live so close to one another? I cannot figure it out. It can be impossible to trace ancestors when the names and the dates and the locations are so similar. It gets messy. Now, we know that we have a Mary and Martha who are sisters in Luke's gospel, don't we? They're in chapter 10 when Jesus visits a certain village, which is unnamed in the text. And the story occurs in a section of the gospel in which Jesus is traveling somewhere in Galilee or Samaria, somewhere up north, nowhere close to Bethany, which is outside of Jerusalem. And what is peculiar there is that the text says he is in the home of Martha. And it would be unusual to refer to a home as the home of a woman in a patriarchal culture, especially if she was living with her brother. It would have been referred to as her brother's home, not her home. And there's no mention of Lazarus in chapter 10 in Luke's gospel either, only the two sisters, Martha and Mary. But here in John's story, the home is Lazarus's, not Martha's. And they are not in Galilee or Samaria, but they're down south, closer to Jerusalem. And Schrader suggests that an editor has added in Martha into John's gospel with a different Mary and her brother Lazarus. And her hypothesis is that in the second century, there were two variations of the fourth gospel in circulation. One with Lazarus and then his sister Mary. And then another one that has Martha added into the story. And then she goes on to propose that if the confession was originally by Mary, not Martha, then we can see a narrative continuum happen in the second half of John's gospel. It begins with the story of the raising of Lazarus, and then in chapter 12 when Mary anoints Jesus to the very end when Mary is at the empty tomb in John. If we look at the two Marys, the narrative similarities are striking. Both Marys are crying at the tomb. Both stories have the question, where have you laid him? There's a stone in front of the tomb in both. There's a burial cloth in both scenes. Both Marys experience a resurrection, and both are responsible for others believing. And if those two Marys are the same, and if Mary is the one who sees Jesus' identity and then confesses, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world, then the Gospel of John gives us a powerful portrait of a woman standing as an apostolic witness in the story of Jesus, much like we see in the Gospel of Matthew with Peter's confession. Now, as you might imagine... That biblical studies world, it's all a buzz. And as Schrader worked on her PhD at Duke, she was invited to present her research to the Nestle Alain Translation Committee of the Greek New Testament in Germany. And the Nestle Alain Committee, you may never have heard of them, but they are very important in biblical circles. 
They take the best of current textual studies and they produce what is the accepted version of the Greek New Testament that is used for translation purposes. And they provide a Greek text with all sorts of footnotes that contain information on all the manuscript variations and so much more. And the latest edition of that is more than 10 years old and they're currently working on an updated one, and we'll see what happens when the 29th edition is released. Now, I want to be clear. Martha is in our English translations of John 11 and John 12 because all of our best manuscripts have Martha in them in some variation. But there are anomalies. There are corrections, there are changes, there are conflicting texts which have long raised questions among scholars. And now someone has proposed a common thread through those ancient variations to make sense of all the irregularities that are there. And all of a sudden there are new questions that are bubbling up that have never been asked before. I have preached on this familiar story many times over the years with the text that we have in our Bibles. And yet, as I prepared for this sermon, I couldn't shake the feeling that for the first time I needed to share this research and this conversation with you. Now, I confess, I am not a textual critic. I enjoyed textual criticism in seminary, I felt like Sherlock Holmes, but it's hard work. It's technical and difficult. I find her proposal intriguing, and it opens up possibilities for reading the fourth gospel in rich ways that we have not done before, but her work is still new, and scholars are divided in their assessments, and perhaps there's a very real possibility that there will never be a consensus and all of this was begging the question for me. What do you do when the ground shifts under you? When what you thought you knew for certain turns out to be just a little bit less sure. Often when that happens, we respond to ambiguity with fear, don't we? We grasp onto our treasured truths even tighter. We may lash out at those who are asking questions or those who hold a different viewpoint. And our fear can close our eyes until we can no longer see new possibilities. In doing so, we may double down on our position. We may stubbornly refuse to engage, shutting down any conversation that feels threatening. We've seen such reactionary responses in our state legislatures in recent weeks, haven't we? As they have passed draconian legislation on our LGBTQ neighbors. It is fear-based in origin. With a refusal to see their neighbors as themselves and in a desperate attempt to create a state in which differences are demonized. 
But friends, basing our actions in fear is antithetical to the gospel. And often it leads us to keep doing what we've always done, ignoring the signs of change around us, staying with the routines which have brought security in the past, but are not life-giving any longer. On this fifth Sunday of Lent, as we stand outside of Lazarus' tomb alongside the others, looking around for the first time, wondering who's here with us, and why are we in this situation, and what may happen next, I wonder if we can find the courage to ask new questions. If, like Mary or Martha, or both, we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, can we shift our gaze from the shadows of death and instead ask, where's the life in what we are doing in this moment? Yes, the world is in flux. What once seemed certain is now much less so. If, as we gather in Jesus' name, can we believe that Christ is in the midst of us? And can we then have the courage to ask, how are we participating in the life-affirming ministry of Jesus where we are with what we know now and with the questions facing us? Too often we keep our attention elsewhere. We see a valley of dry bones and we despair. We fear rolling away the stone. We're convinced that the shadow of death is stronger. But today, my friends, Christ stands with us. Christ stands with us in our grief at what we've lost, in our fear of what may await us. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Abide in me. Can we say yes? Can we imagine a world made new again? Can we hear Jesus say in this moment to us, come forth, be unbound? May it be so. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.